Hi, this is Chris Castile with The Oklahoman on the latest edition of Political State, and I'm fortunate to have uh, in the studio today Representative Tom Cole, all the way from Washington, back in his district. Uh, I was going to say all the way from Moore. All the way from Moore, um, <laughs> after a few busy weeks in Washington. And uh, Congressman, I just want to, uh, I've been all over your district uh, campaigning on your campaigns and town halls. Um, so it's quite a big district. I was, uh, uh, if, if you don't mind, could you just describe your district? Sure. It uh, you know, starts in the north, really, with Midwest City and Tinker Air Force Base, and uh, then uh, moves all the way south along I-35 down to the Texas border, spreads out west from there as far as Jefferson County. So the, the principal accesses in the district would be the metro area in Norman in the north, then Lawton in the southwest with Fort Sill. Uh, and then sort of the Ada Ardmore area uh, it sort of defines it. You actually even have some small part of South Oklahoma City. I do. Uh, you know, so uh, quite a bit of o- – people forget Oklahoma City doesn't end at the uh, Oklahoma County line. Right. It's, it really covers p- parts of five or six different counties. So I have a considerable chunk of Oklahoma City and um, uh, Cleveland County uh, that's actually – quite large and and very important part of the city and then some parts in canadian county as well and the two largest uh, military installations in the state fort sill and tinker Air Force i do and uh, we make more tires uh, than any other congressional district in america because of uh, goodyear and michelin in uh, lawton and ardmore we're number seven in the number of horses uh we're uh, you know twenty thousand plus uh, producing oil and gas wells i think stevens and carter county are still the two largest uh, oil producers in the state and 11 different Indian tribes have jurisdiction over parts of the district so it's a really quite diverse district five different colleges and universities including uh, uh, you know one of the state's two flagship universities in the University of Oklahoma so uh, very very substantial uh, uh, district with a lot of diverse interests inside it just like you're a you're a Republican uh, you won the district for the first time in 02 2002 when it was pretty overwhelmingly Democratic yeah it was it? registered better than 60 percent Democrat mm-hmm. at the time it still has more Democrats than Republicans okay. Republicans in it. So um, uh, the uh, political geography uh, makes it uh, somewhat complex, uh, but and the split between metro areas and metro areas in Oklahoma have moved somewhat to the left compared mm-hmm. to what they where they were at 20 years ago. That's true of both Oklahoma City Metro and certainly of Tulsa Metro as well. And if anything, uh, rural Oklahoma has moved to the right and certainly become much more Republican. I mean, I have counties now. I would only get 75 and 80 percent of the vote in that I couldn't carry in 2002 as a Republican, and they're still heavily Democrat. They'll still be registered 70 percent plus Democrat along the Texas uh, line, but they've been voting consistently Republican, not just for me, but you can see at the presidential level right on down to uh, county courthouses beginning to turn and certainly state legislative uh, districts. It's very heavily. I mean, when I first got elected, there's on average about 20 House seats in every congressional district, state House seats in every congressional district, about 10 Senate seats on average. Uh, and uh, I think only five of the House seats were Republican in this district. Now probably only four or five are Democrats. Right. So it's really changed very dramatically. And the same kind of change at the at the Senate level. I mean, most of the Senate seats back then were Democratic. Most of them now are Republican. Mm-hmm. And you served in one of those Senate seats. We should say, um, 
I think the average congressional district of the five congressional districts is about 700,000 people. About 750. Ours are a little bit larger, actually, than most of the ones in the country, probably a little bit more than that today. Oklahoma's had, uh, despite the ups and downs of the energy industry, they haven't been nearly as dramatic as they were in the 80s and 90s. And, And quite frankly, we've had 10 years of pretty steady growth, particularly in the metropolitan areas. I know in your office um, in the past, you, you guys have kept track of phone calls on very big issues, and I've been able to call and say, you know, how are the calls running? So I'd, if you've checked lately, how are the calls running on impeachment? I have checked. Uh, first of all, they're not nearly as numerous mm-hmm. as we've had on previous issues. Let's think things like TARP, the so-called bank bailout bill, uh, uh, gay marriage. Those have all been much hotter issues, at least in terms of numbers. The, um, the calls have been split uh they're about 50 50 mm-hmm. uh frankly the norman area tends to make up uh, most of the pro impeachment uh once you get south of uh, the south canadian river it's again a very different kind of uh, view uh, of the whole process so uh divided but but the president remains very popular in the district i mean his, his approval rating district wide is probably about 60 percent mm. Uh, so I think if you actually looked at it in terms of what sentiment is, I think the sentiment in the district would be against impeachment at this point. What uh, have you? Tell, tell me first how you've been following um, the hearings, the public phase of it, and and the transcripts of of the, uh, the the earlier part of it, and 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 after that, if if you could describe for me, I mean, what you think happened what do you think the president did what he intended to do i mean what what the whole thing with the conversation and uh, and the giuliani um, activity in the ukraine what your assessment of everything that went on well there? first of all in terms of the process of informing myself i'm not on any of the principal Correct, committees right. dealing with it so this has been primarily driven by the intelligence committee uh and uh, obviously will wrap up in the judiciary committee the role I've played has been in the Rules Committee, where we considered the process under mm-hmm. which we are now proceeding. And I'll talk about that in a minute because I have very strong opinions about that. In terms of keeping up with the day, you know, all of us have a day job. Right. Uh, and so uh, if you're not on the committees of principal jurisdiction, uh, you're meeting with constituents, you're attending your other committee meetings, you're involved in other activities. So you're not able to sit there and listen to every minute of testimony. Uh, most members I know catch as much as they can. The television is continuously on in most offices. Then you read the media. I mean, you follow the reports that are in the, the periodicals, the newspapers. Uh, a lot of folks, uh, you know, you, you watch cable news uh, during the day, catch what you can of the analysis there. But probably you rely the most on the members on the committee that, that you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sit on the leadership, uh, what's called the leadership table for the Republican Party as the ranking member on rules. And so I'm hearing what Devin Nunes has to say or Jim Jordan has to say because he's a ranking member on oversight. And I have quite a few uh, close friends on the Intelligence Committee because there's a big overlap between that and the defense uh, area. And I'm on the Defense Appropriations Committee. So these are people I interact with uh, on a pretty regular basis. So somebody like Elise Stefanik, who you see on Intelligence and also sits on uh, the House Armed Services Committee, I deal with on the appropriations front for defense. So I know her very well. And so those have been the main sources. Uh, In terms of what's happened, to be fair, we still have a lot 
to learn. There's a lot of people that have either chosen not to testify uh, or are waiting on courts deciding as to whether or not they can testify because they have the executive branch telling them, no, you can't, and the the legislative uh, branch saying, we want you to come in, mm-hmm. we've got a subpoena, and they're sort of caught. They, they're, so they're, 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 those decisions may actually shake loose some very, pretty important witnesses. Bolton, I look at uh, people like Bolton. Perhaps, yeah, uh, Bolton would mm-hmm. certainly be one of them. Perhaps Secretary of State uh, right. Mike Pompeo. So, uh, but it, it, it appears that those will be tied up in court for quite a while, and I suspect the majority uh, that is pushing this Democratic majority is on a tighter time frame, and so we may. Uh, they think they've established their case uh, with the evidence they've already presented, so I, they may well proceed. In terms of how I look at it, I, you know, first I look at the fact things that we know and that we don't know, or things that we know for sure. Look, uh, we know that uh, the aid arrived, uh, and it arrived about six weeks later than it might have arrived. It's not a long period of time. We know that uh, no investigations in the Ukraine, Ukraine were undertaken. So whatever, if something was asked, it certainly wasn't given mm-hmm. in the end. We know that uh, the President Zelensky, uh, who this was also not just aid, but also appearances with the president, has had two of those, including one at the White House. So uh, whatever leverage that was, it, it didn't happen. We know that President Zelensky has told us, I felt no pressure. Uh, we know that the president has said, I, you know, I never intended any quid pro quo. Uh, and we know the president's released the relevant phone calls, at least, uh, with some sort of uh, grand trip that seems to be, according to everybody that listened to the call, pretty accurate reflection. May not have every nuance, but pretty accurate. So I look at all that, and then I look at, um, okay, what is impeachment? Uh, is it? Do, do we go after a president because he did something either we disagree with or we think is inappropriate? Uh, I, I think no. I mean, you have to have a much higher standard than that. When I, I think about President Obama, who frankly had a good personal relationship with, uh, fought on a lot of issues, but worked with on some issues. Um, you know, I remember when he took us to war in Libya, which I thought was a very bad thing to do. And he did not come to Congress and ask for us to do it. He, he interpreted the NATO treaty to allow him to do that. Now, no NATO country was attacked. Libya wasn't a member, let alone an enemy of NATO. There, I mean, it just was really stretching the limit. Did I disagree with him? Did I make that apparent? Did I vote against him uh, in the House? I certainly did. Uh, would I have impeached him over that? No. Uh, and I think that is sort of the way I look at this. Whether I agree or disagree with everything, does this rise to the level of bribery? I don't think it does. Or uh, treason? Certainly not that. Uh, or, uh, you know, high crimes and misdemeanor, whatever that is. Uh, impeachment is primarily a political judgment being made by a legislative body. I look at it also that if the votes are there to impeach, and so far only Democrats have been voted. Now, again, we haven't had an impeachment vote yet, but for the process, only Democrats have, have voted that way. There, there's no likely scenario that you could get the votes in the United States Senate. Uh, you're not going to flip 20 Republican senators on the basis of what we know today. So plunging the country into this, months of legislative paralysis and indecision, embittering and dividing the country on a goal that you can't achieve in Congress and that will be uh, the American people will make the final decision in 
uh, November, less than a year. So again, I have no problem with hearings. I think they're very appropriate to have hearings, investigations. This should have been an oversight matter, though, not an impeachment matter. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's a mistake. Finally, the I also look at the process because process is important in this. And rather than do the process that was agreed to on a bipartisan manner for both Bill Clinton and Nixon, which were substantially the same. They made a few little tweaks, but nothing serious. Uh, But that was negotiated, and members of both parties voted for that process. The Democrats chose to do a totally new process. They presented that process, filed it uh, 24 hours before it was approved in the Rules Committee, and then went to the floor. So we were not consulted in that, no discussions held. We presented 17 amendments to the process. Not one of them was accepted, even ones that Democrats said, well, we think that's actually pretty much what this says. And I remember saying, well, then accept the amendment if it doesn't change the intent. No, no. Uh, So to give your listeners an example of what that means. So when we did the Nixon and the the Clinton impeachment trials, there was only one committee empowered to pursue impeachment. That was judiciary. In that committee, the president had an attorney. That attorney had the right to cross-examine, the right to call witnesses, the right to present exculpatory uh, evidence. The president's, the main committee here is clearly intelligence, although there's a half a dozen empowered to pursue impeachment. Um, uh, For instance, financial services, ways and means, because they thought, well, maybe out of all this, maybe we'll get the president's tax returns, and maybe there would be something impeachable there. So let's give them the power, even though, as far as we can tell, they're not working on anything actively. But Again, the president was represented in, in both the Nixon and the Clinton case. In the making. He hasn't been represented yet. Is it, but that would happen at judiciary. It right? would happen, yeah, but all the uh, evidence, uh, you know, at this stage has been presented in, uh, uh, without him being able to do this. So, again, we didn't do it that way in the past. And I think it makes a difference to have the president's counsel there with the ability to question and cross-examine and to bring other inter- uh, other. Uh, witnesses in. Uh, Republicans have requested a lot of witnesses that haven't been able to come in. Everything from uh, Joe and Hunter Biden to the whistleblower uh, to what about people that listen to the call that have a different opinion than some of those who have brought out. We haven't heard any of those people. Let, let me ask you about the um, about the quid pro quo. I, you know, I think you said on Meet the Press uh, a couple weeks ago the same thing that if it was a pre pro quo it wasn't a very good one. But does it matter? Um, uh, I think it does matter because in the end... If it wasn't... If, if there's a big difference between starting down a path and then thinking, you know, and look, there's actually an interesting telephone call that we have a record of in August before the whistleblower's report was known where the president is talking to um, uh, Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Uh, and Senator Johnson is a big advocate for support for the Ukraine. And he's pushing hard for the release of the aid. And the president tells him, you know, it's probably going to come down the way you, you expect it. We're still looking at it, but it's probably going to come down that way. So I think, honestly, the president is is he's like a business guy, he tries to leverage a personal advantage in just about every transaction. But in this case, I think the aid was coming regardless. Uh, and it did come regardless. I think the White House visits were coming, and they did come. Uh, and I think uh, he got enough pushback in different areas that whatever his initial decision, he didn't didn't pursue it. So, again, to remove an elected president uh, and to plunge the country into a crisis and to 
put aside all the rest of the country's business on this, a phone call where the aide got there, where, you know, the investigations that were requested. And by the way, there's nothing illegal about a president requesting an investigation from foreign governments. We do that all the time. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, I, I would agree. I, if you're asking me would I have ever mentioned to Biden's name, no, I wouldn't have. Do I think the call was perfect? No, I don't. We wouldn't be an impeachment inquiry. If the do you call think it was perfect. appropriate, I guess, is the word? Well, yeah. I wouldn't have done it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but uh, there is a lot of corruption in the Ukraine. I have to tell you, uh, just looking, I, I don't know if Hunter Biden did anything illegal. I'm going to presume he didn't. But I will tell you what he did was wrong. I mean, the idea you got the son of the vice president when the vice president's the point person on Ukraine getting 80000 I hear reports, fifty to $83,000 a month for five years, uh, that that doesn't look bad, that, that the president uh, didn't say, no, you can't do that, or the vice president didn't say, no, my son can't do it, or Hunter Biden didn't say, this looks pretty bad. Uh, it looks terrible. And so, uh, you know, I'm sorry if you're going to put yourself in that kind of situation, you're going to get investigated. I think that's probably president's frustration. He, he had to go through two years of investigation over something that at the end of the day, they said, no, there's no collusion with Russia. Uh, and any obstruction charges had to do with things that happened after an unfair investigation began. And none of those were followed up on by the attorney general. And now he's in this situation, and my political rivals are. Again, I don't justify that. But again, I don't think out of that you would you would put the country in impeachment. And I think the Democrats are going to find out, look, we had Bill Clinton in 1999 on perjury. Everybody knew that's true. We had him on. He admitted, you know, what he'd done uh, in turn, and that wasn't considered sufficient by my Democratic colleagues for them to vote for impeachment. Now, on something that didn't happen, they want Republicans to vote for impeachment. I just think that's, you know, and you adopt a process that the Republicans object to vehemently when you have another one that they had supported in the past. The smart thing would have been done. It would have been the right thing. But the smart thing would have been done. We're going to do exactly what you guys did with Bill Clinton. Same impeachment process right down the line. Why didn't do that? You saw this in one of the impeachment hearings, which I happened to catch, where I saw, uh, you know, uh, Chairman Schiff cutting off Elise Stefanik because another member had yielded her time. We actually had an amendment to prohibit what he did there. I've never been in a congressional committee in 17 years when you, one member can't yield time to another member. Now, why did they want to stop that? Not you know, our ranking members not a trial attorney. Uh, you know, uh, Shift is a former federal prosecutor. Um, you know, we've got some people that are very good at this. I think at least Stefani. So again, it's just it's every little partisan advantage you could get. You don't do those things and then expect bipartisan cooperation from the other side, particularly when you certainly didn't extend it in the last impeachment uh, uh, consideration that we had. And there's still members like Congressman Lucas uh, that were there at that yeah. time. Let me let me ask you this. Um, there's some talk. I, I don't know if you've heard this internally, but have you have you heard any talk? that they may um, add other things to if they are going to have articles of impeachment they may do something from the, they may do something on um, enriching the president uh, the president enriching himself you know I've, I've read about those kinds of things in the media I have not heard any talk about it from other members uh, to be 
fair. It's probably not something at this stage they'd be talking to non-committee members about. So, I, you know, all I can tell you is I've read probably the same accounts you have, mm-hmm. but I haven't heard anything firsthand. That there might be impeachment articles that go beyond the Ukrainian. Yeah, uh, well, they might go back to trying to pull out some obstruction charges in the Mueller thing. A lot of Democrats didn't agree with the opinion of both the attorney general and the deputy attorney general on that. So I think they've left it open to cast as wide or as narrow a net. They may, I know there's a tactical in, a debate inside the Democratic conference. Do you keep it simple on, on this thing or do you try and bring in some of these other things that we have concerns about but did not move on in the past? And uh, again, I, they, I just don't think they've made that decision, but they're making a case to the American people. Look, this isn't clearly about being able to remove the president. I don't think they believe for a minute they've got the votes, and they certainly haven't believed it since uh, they lost every single Republican vote on the partisan process. So it's how do we present the best case and uh, to persuade the American people in a way that will benefit us in the elections in 2020. Do you, do you I mean, I think when, when you were addressing town halls uh, uh, this summer and uh, early fall, you were predicting impeachment do you still see it happening uh? i do i don't think you can let this horse out of the barn and not follow it mm-hmm. uh, you know i think uh, uh, the democrats have invested so heavily in this and their belief they've proven their case uh, they're gonna they're going to uh, uh, present this and uh, members are gonna have to vote on it. and frankly that's that's going to be a big political risk to about 30 or so of their members. I mean, Including for, one that represents this district. I'm not going to get into talking about my <laughs> colleagues, uh, and, and I mean that seriously. I try not to do that. But, but clearly, if you're in a Trump district, uh, in a district that he might carry again in 2020, uh, there's a political calculus here. And again, impeachment is not a legal proceeding. It's really a political proceeding, and it's about whether or not the uh, chief executive uh, now if they committed a crime there's certainly a legal aspect to it but it's really primarily a political judgment as to whether or not the, the behavior is so egregious we've only impeached 19 people in the history of the United States at the U.S. Senate level. And, of course, uh, only uh, three previous presidents have been uh, subjected to these proceedings. Two were actually impeached. That is, the House voted to remove. Neither of those were removed. The third, Richard Nixon, uh, resigned, resigned you know, after the charges were reported out of committee. They certainly would have would have gone to the House, and uh, he was advised politically would pass the House and would pass the Senate. So let's uh, let's move on to an, another big issue, um, and that's appropriations. This this uh, congressional session started in January in the midst of um, uh, a freeze on on spending on several agencies, not all, but uh, it was a partial government shutdown. That includes some pretty big uh, agencies. Last week, you guys, uh, with your vote, one of the few Republican votes, uh, passed a. a kind of a stopgap spending measure that will go to five days before Christmas while you um, try to work out uh, some spending. Tell us, you're a very important person on appropriations. Uh, you, you you were one of the cardinals before Democrats took over the majority earlier this year. There was some. There was a pretty big development uh, over the weekend on appropriations. And let me ask you, um, as you address uh, the problems over spending, uh, is is this going to come down to funding a wall again? Yeah. Let me uh, let me address it maybe in a little more context than just that last question. 
But uh, we had, first of all, just philosophically, I oppose government shutdowns. I always oppose them. I think they're bad policy. And in the case of the vote uh, last week, where I was one of 12 Republicans that voted uh, to continue to fund the government, I remember telling our own leadership, look, a Republican Senate is going to pass this. And it did the next day, 74 to 20. And a Republican president is going to sign this. Mm -hmm. Why do we all want to be against that? We should make a clear statement. We don't think shutting down the government's a legitimate political tool, even though both sides have used it in the past. I thought it was an opportunity to, to make that point, and uh, I wouldn't wouldn't change that vote for a minute. I think it's a mistake to shut down the government. In July, we uh, I, and I give the president, I give Speaker Pelosi, I give Majority uh, Leader McConnell, I give the two minority leaders, Chuck Schumer in the Senate, Kevin McCarthy in the House, credit for this. They came to a big two-year spending deal. Mm-hmm. We set the top lines that we could spend and deal with the, the um, uh, debt ceiling issue and push it past the next election, sort of keeping it out of politics, hopefully making sure we wouldn't shut down the government. And and I, I don't believe we will. We'll pass. If we can't come to an agreement on the 12 bills, we'll come to a, 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 a what's called a CR, continuing resolution. We'll keep government open. But um, in that agreement in July, they set how much we were going to spend for defense, uh, which this year would be about, for this fiscal year, be about $738 billion, uh, 39, about, about a $22 billion increase. And then for non-defense, it's a smaller increase, but still real. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we would then take the defense number we know. We take the remaining, which is less than half the total budget, and divide it up in these other 11 areas. We've, and one of those areas is Homeland Security. One of them would include the wall. That's been a, uh, 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 you know, a flashpoint, if you will. It's what caused the shutdown last year, could cause the shutdown again this year. I think the appropriators decided to go ahead, leave all language on the wall out for mm-hmm. future negotiation. Let's just set the amount. So, for instance, like in the bill that that uh, I'm responsible for, the so-called Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education Bill, largest domestic spending bill. Uh, We don't have anything to do with the wall. We don't have anything to do with Homeland Security. We do have something to do uh, if there's an illegal migrant surge. Health and Human Services then takes care of the unaccompanied uh, migrants. So we we have uh, that portion. But we don't have any of the part that's controversial. Look, people aren't mad because we're making sure people are fed and vaccinated and housed appropriately while their legal uh, status is is determined by the United States uh, judicial system. So, uh, you know, we should be able to get our work done. Uh, I'm hopeful, again, if we stumble into a CR, let alone a shutdown, that's devastating for defense. That's really bad. So in real terms, that's bad for, in terms of getting ready for the KC-46 tanker. At four, we sh- right, we at should at say, because this is such deep in the weeds, yeah. Washington talk, that what a CR does is it keeps everything in, as it was in the past fiscal year, which means it requires any agency, but the Pentagon is what you're talking about, to keep spending money on things they might not want to spend money on because that was part of last year. They aren't able to adapt their budget to this year's needs, which is why you guys do spending bills every year exactly. so you can move – move priorities around the way the Defense Department Well, I'll give you a perfect example in round numbers of how that would hurt, for instance, Tinker. 
uh, Tinker's going to be the home of the next man bomber, uh, the B-21. That's where it's going to be maintained. Uh, this year, if I recall the numbers right, we're doing about $500 million worth of testing on that. It'll be rolled out in the early 2020s. That's supposed to move to over $700 million next year. If we just do 500, that means you're going to delay uh, and increase the cost, by the way, of the, of the deployment of that manned bomber sometime into the future. And that's true every age. You can just multiply this right. thousands and thousands of times over. Or you're buying things that you don't need right. anymore. Maybe, They're forced to live under those Yeah, um, it, it's just so – it, it sounds – it's, it's a re, you would never run your business this way. Right. You would never say, I need exactly the same number, number of paper clips this year that I bought last year. And, and everybody in Congress knows that. Everybody yet, knows it. it always comes down to these – to not getting these, oh, these you know, I would say not action. I would tell you some members don't know it. Uh-huh. I mean, I hate to say that, but newer members, and this is a very young Congress, don't really understand it. If you're not on the Appropriations Committee, uh, you know what are called authorized committees, which is most of Congress. Uh, frankly, they they authorize things, but they usually authorize more money than we have. Mm-hmm. So the Appropriations Committee comes in and says, "Well, you may have authorized up to three hundred million, but it's going to be two hundred and twenty because we." We don't have that much right. money, and and they can change the priorities. So, but bottom line is, we need to get, the best governance is to get your appropriations work done on time. Uh, we're already late; should have been done by September thirtieth. We got most of it done by September thirtieth last year, and still had, as you pointed out, the partial government shutdown that stretched into this year. Now we've got none of those bills passed. Uh, we've gotten them done through the House. Yeah, most the ten, just on most of them, right? Uh, yeah, because they couldn't get to 60. You know, yeah. the House is majoritarian. So even though I didn't vote for the appropriations bills that passed the House because they're very Democratic, uh, the point is we can move the bills. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, though, you got to – moving them through the House isn't enough. Got to have a product that has to be bipartisan through the Senate. And unless you can override a veto, you've got to have a product that the president can sign. So just because we get our work done, if we get it done in a fashion that's unacceptable to the Senate and unacceptable to the president, we haven't really done our work. What we've done is mark out our negotiating position. Just a uh, last question on this and, and leave it at that. I mean, you, you don't expect – it's five days before Christmas when this next one expires. You don't expect a, a Government shut down five days. I do Christmas. not. I, I think it would be a you know a, a political catastrophe for all concerned, Democrat or Republican. Uh, wouldn't reflect well on the president either. So I would hope everybody's learned their lesson and uh, that we would keep government running. I do think there's a window though to get a lot, if not all, of these bills done. And particularly, you know, last year one of the reasons we got defense and labor H done. Uh, so we put them together. I mean, we moved them separately until the end, and then we combined them. And then a lot of people that wanted defense uh, would accept labor age and vice versa. And so we passed it like 360-something to 60-something with almost identical numbers of Democrats and Republicans, about 170 or 80 of each party voting in favor. So it was actually a grand compromise. And that's what appropriations needs to be, particularly in divided government. Nobody's going to get there in a whole way. And you can't have a situation where, uh, you know, a lot of Republicans – look, if I could get defense, I, I would get defense and then work on the others. But 
the other side, the Democrats aren't going to give you defense until they get labor age. So right. you just have to recognize uh, there's going to be compromises both within the bills to get there, and there's going to be compromises between the bills and as to which bills move. And if you don't uh, choreograph that all well, we're in one of these uh, continuing resolutions at best, or we're in a government shutdown at worst. Right. Let me, I want to ask you um, about some specific appropriations. I mean, there's really important stuff in all of them, but, you know, with defense, uh, um, a pay raise for civilians and, and active duty. But you, for many years, uh, were the chairman of the uh, subcommittee that handles labor and, and uh, health and human services. When uh, that, that position, when you're chairman of an appropriation subcommittee called Cardinal, and now you're the, the top Republican on it. But in those years um, that you were the chairman, there's a lot of focus on Alzheimer's research. And that's a part of uh, what, what your subcommittee does is medical research. Uh, National Institute of, of Health. Exactly. Event. So I, t- talk about that priority for you because it has borne. Oh, it's uh, been remarkable. As a matter of fact, just before I came here, I was over at the Stevenson Center, which is now a, a nationally recognized uh, center of excellence by the National uh, Cancer Institute, which has put them in the position to get more and more research dollars, do more and more cutting-edge uh, work. So we, we, we've had a four-year effort when I was chairman, and obviously you can't do this if you don't have the support of your ranking member, which I certainly did, uh, Democrat uh, Rosa DeLora, and more importantly, the United States Senate counterpart, Roy Blunt from Missouri and Patty Murray from the state of Washington. We all worked on this together. But the idea was we had flat-funded biomedical research for 12 years, and we think it should be a priority to look everything from cancer to Down syndrome to Alzheimer's to you name it. Uh, and so we decided we would we would begin to we'd make some tough decisions elsewhere and we'd put additional money in these areas and we've been able to do that for four consecutive years and if we get a deal we'll get a fifth year alzheimer's was picked as probably the premier example of a broader effort uh, because of its cost Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in the last four years we've moved alzheimer's funding from about 550 million dollars a year to about 2.4 billion in other words we've more than quadrupled it uh, and the reason is it's the most expensive disease we have. The federal government spends $290 billion a year, mostly through Medicaid, looking after Alzheimer's patients. Um, it's, uh, you know, and the number of patients we have, because as lifespan extends, this tends to hit, can hit at any age, but it tends to hit, obviously, most people in the 50s and 60s. Um, but you can live well into your You 80s, can live, for, uh, yeah, because it, it, well, I had an experience like this. Part of this is personal knowledge. My, my dad right. went through this, so I understand it. And he lived uh, uh, 19 years after he was diagnosed, 12 years in a veteran center because he was a career non-com. That care probably cost the federal government anywhere from six to $11,000 a month. Uh, because he was just totally disabled. We couldn't keep him at home. We kept him at home for five or six years, but we we finally reached the point for his safety. We just couldn't do it any longer, mm-hmm. and a lot of families do that. Uh, but the, everybody co- knows. It, the cost is just staggering, and that cost will move from 200 on its current projected uh, increase from $290 billion to $1.1 trillion by 2050. In a single year? In a, no. Now, the cost would move from about now over the next 30 years would just keep moving up. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the uh, uh, if you can delay the onset 
of Alzheimer's by five years, not even cure it, just delay the onset, you lower that cost by 42%. Hmm. It's staggering because, again, it's late in life, but it's extremely expensive care. So obviously we want to find a cure, uh, but this should be a national priority. It's a budgetary priority to make the investment there. Uh, We think um, we need to continue to increase that. We might not need to do it quite as dramatically, although one or two more substantial years would be good. Um, but this is a disease that uh, is just destroying the rest of the budget, not to mention, more importantly, the lives that it destroys and, and how awful it is. Uh, so I'm very proud of the work we did in a bipartisan manner uh, in that area, but I'm proud of all of them across the board. I mean, being able to uh, invest more money, believe me, long term, spending money on cures actually saves you money. Sure. Disease and the management of disease is far more expensive than the cure. And if, if you're my age, you think of polio being essentially eradicated from the planet. Mm-hmm. We're down to less than two dozen cases a year. It was a very common disease amongst uh, young children when I was growing up. Everybody had kids in your class that had polio and were victims, and you saw the difference that made to their life and uh, what it meant for their families. And so a cure, particularly one that can be mass-produced the way the polio vaccine is, pretty phenomenal contribution. Uh, So our government has been able to, you know, we've been very fortunate in the last few years. We've not had Ebola break out, and we've had some bad days in Africa. Well, we've kept it out of the United States, and we now have a vaccine for it, and we're, we're able to control it. Uh, you know, we invest a lot of money. Uh, the most deadly pandemic of the 20th century was the flu pandemic of 1919 that killed more people in the First World War, well over 50 million. Uh, that's why they tell you to take your flu shots. why we spend a lot of money every year developing this, uh, keeping the vaccine on hand, making sure we can respond to outbreaks. All that's enormously expensive, but it's part of the protection of the American people. I, I mean, I, I will just tell you, while we all we care about defense, and I'm a defense hawk, and um, I, you know we spend a lot more money on defense than we do on these areas, you're much more likely to die in a pandemic than you are a terrorist attack. So mm-hmm. protecting you from Ebola, protecting you from uh, a, a flu pandemic, uh, making sure that, uh, it, God forbid, if you have Alzheimer's in your family, there's something that slow it down, hopefully cure it someday so you don't go through that. Uh, those are all things that, uh, again, uh, prove human life and ultimately save money for the taxpayer. Now, you mentioned uh, research at the Stevenson Center, but the NIH, it, it, it can – give grants to private and um, government. Absolutely. I mean, the NIH is a major, uh, you know, we were just uh, uh, recently celebrated uh, over at the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. They'd gotten $50 million worth of grants in a variety of uh, uh, areas, everything from anthrax to uh, autoimmune, uh, uh, autoimmunity, uh, diseases and where they're specialists. But again, uh, these are areas where the money comes from here, but most of the, and most of the research is all over the country. I mean, mm-hmm. the NIH, the headquarters is located in, uh, uh, in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., but the dollars, over 85% of what's appropriated, which is about $39 billion, goes to over 2,500 uh, medical research centers and, and medical centers like 
the Health Science Center at OU, like the Oklahoma Medical Research uh, Foundation, like the Stevenson Cancer Center. So those are dollars that move out, and, and you get life-saving cures and real investment, and you develop the industri- the biomedical uh, research infrastructure of this country, which is, again, you got to have it uh, to defend yourself from what the biosphere is going to throw at you. Yeah, and this is this, a lot of this work is a work that's you know it's kind of invisible i mean you guys spend a lot of you guys spend hours in those subcommittees talking to researchers and and figuring out you know how how best to allocate those those limited resources let me real real quick ask you on health care on prescription drugs and i know a lot of people have said you know this impeachment uh uh process has has kept uh kept congress from doing work on all kinds of things this is one of them the president said uh, the other day um that he expects to move soon on allowing um, reimportation of drugs from Canada. Where where would you be on that? Well, it depends on what drugs we're talking about. And uh, look, the Canadians are, it's if you're in Canada, you can't get all the drugs you can get in the United States. You know, most people don't realize this, but because they control the prices, they can only buy 56% of the drugs that we can buy mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, uh, Insulin's one of them, though. Yeah. That's the one we're No, there's no question. The no question. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, I have no problem with that. Uh, you just got to make sure you don't lower things to the point that there's not research being done. Uh, 57% of all the new drugs produced in the world are patented in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's partly because these companies are able to do it. Now, in terms of drug pricing, no question. There's some egregious, outrageous cases of people buying up existing patents and then jacking up the price. Uh, there's other cases where uh, Americans are paying more because foreign countries, uh, frankly, uh, you know, uh, extort American drug companies. Say, if you, you either pay this or you can't sell it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we end up paying the upfront cost for the development of most of the drugs in the world are either on the backs of our taxpayers or the backs of our consumers. Um, the, uh, the president has a plan, and he's serious about this. He's not a big fan of the drug companies uh, to lower the prices. Speaker Pelosi has a plan uh, to lower the drug prices, and there's a bipartisan bill in the Senate by Senator Grassley from Iowa and Senator Wyden from Oregon. So there's actually three or four plans floating out there. They differ quite a bit. I certainly wouldn't vote for Speaker Pelosi's plan. I think it's confiscatory, and I, I think it will ultimately uh, you know, stop innovation in the United States. But there are some elements in it that we could vote for. And if you actually put all three plans together, there's sort of a core that they all agree on. Uh, I think that's what the president's trying to do. Uh, I had a discussion with uh, this last week with uh, Secretary Azar, the head of Health and Human Services, who is the president's point person on this very issue. And he's out, he said, Tom, there's some things we do that we think could save the American consumer over $100 billion a year that would really, you would materially see it. Uh, and if we can get an agreement on that with the Democrats, and they, you know, why wouldn't we do that? And let's give the American uh, consumer the savings. Let's not try and use it for deficit reduction. Let's put it right back in their pocket because they've been paying too high, high a price for too long. So, you know, I'm still optimistic that within this Congress we can get something done. Part of the problem, though, is, again, impeachment does partisanize and, and superheat everything. And I hate to say it, but some people don't want to give the president a victory. Uh, you know, you know, a, 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 this would be a victory that he would 
appropriately take uh, some credit for as the incumbent. And so would House members and sure. and senators. You vote for the bill or you sign the bill, you get some measure of credit for it. And there's some people that don't want to give him any any victories this year leading into an election year. I regret that. Uh, last question, I want to talk to you about a, a legislature. You're a Chickasaw, member of the Chickasaw very Nation. Proud. With very Yeah, very um, or some famous uh, lineage uh, in, in there in your family. You and some other lawmakers introduced legislation about trying to um, kind of reinstate the buffalo population in, in certain areas. I mean, that's something that we've seen in Oklahoma for the last 20 years, a part, party in your district. You know, even longer than Oklahoma has a wonderful history here. Mm-hmm. The first national wildlife reserve is the Wichita Wildlife Reserve right, right outside district, of Fort Sill yeah. in my district. And that was set up primarily to, you know, 15 buffalo were brought from the New York City Zoo to go down there to begin to rebuild the herd. There's over 3,000 down there, I think, now. We have a comparable-sized herd up on the tall grass prairie in Osage Mm -hmm. County. So our state has played quite a role in this. There's a real movement in Indian country, and it's everything from cultural and historic reasons, but also health reasons. We find... Honestly, Native Americans, uh, you know, have, have different because that population developed differently uh, than the European population. There are kinds of foods that are more damaging to Indians even than, you know, they are to, to non-natives. So they're more prone to diabetes. They're, they're much more prone, yeah. And and a shorter lifespan, all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. But So there's a health reason here, too. I mean, a lot of tribes want to restock and use buffalo meat. And and um, you know, in addition to or in replacement of other kinds of of protein, I think it's going to work. But regardless, I think it's a good thing to be part of uh, because it's it's something we can do. And I'm really pleased. You know, we have four Native American members now, tribal members. That's the most we've ever had in American history. Two of them from Oklahoma. Right. The and, other being Mark Wayne Mullen from Eastern Oklahoma is a member of the Cherokee Nation. Right. Uh, Deb Holland from uh, New New uh, New Mexico is uh, Laguna Pueblo uh, there, and Sharice uh, uh, David from uh, Kansas is Ho Chunk Indian. Uh, and uh, you know, interesting enough, by the way, there's only been 16 tribal members in the history of the United States House out of over. 12,000 members, eight of them have come from Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So we've always sort of been a, a real leader in, in this particular area. But, uh, yeah, th- so this is sort of a natural for us, given the history of the state, the location of major buffalo herds inside Oklahoma, and, and then our own Native American heritage. Do you expect that? Uh, that I assume that will go to um, the committee in the house that uh that does native American i, I think issues. it will yeah it should go to the natural resources mm-hmm. committee uh and uh, uh i think deb is a member deb howland representative howland is a member of that uh, committee she's she's by the way co-chairs the native american caucus with me she's a wonderful uh new member from new mexico uh, so uh, there's a good chance we get through. It's, it's not a particularly controversial right. bill. You know, we've done some interesting things this uh, last kind of work. Worked very closely with Senator Langford and other members uh, on legislation that would just remove some things from the federal law that were really written and are, are very offensive mm-hmm. uh, from an Indian standpoint to sort of clean out the code a little bit, if you will. Uh, so there's a lot, lot going on in this area. You just hope, uh, you, you, you know, the committees have to have the time to deal with it, and then you have to get to floor time. And 
this is the sort of thing that I think we could probably pass on suspension. That is, where both sides are so overwhelmingly in favor, it takes a two-thirds right. vote, but you can expedite the passage. And in the Senate, you can do what's hot, what's called hotline it or hotwire it, which it takes just unanimous consent and it goes right. down there with a ton of other bills that aren't controversial and moves right on through without debate. So. Uh, we're working it pretty hard, but uh, you know it'll be culturally, historically significant if we can get it passed. Thank you, and Congressman, thanks so much for taking the time to come in. I think uh, the next few weeks, uh, I guess you guys will probably be in session for most of December, and uh, might be a very, very interesting. It was two or three days before Christmas. I was I was there in the chamber when the House uh, impeached uh, President Clinton, then so. Congress doesn't use things. And I think it was Christmas Eve when the Senate passed the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it was. <laughs> it was. So, yeah, I mean, Christmas becomes quite a deadline. Uh, they, they all want to get out of there. But uh, I, I think we are I, – I don't – I wish we wouldn't impeach, but I think that's where we're headed. So I'm not – you know, and if people feel differently, I, I recognize that and I feel like I have to – I just hope we don't allow that to keep us from doing the things we know we can do. We should get these appropriations bills done. Very important to defending the country and for the regular order of business, uh, you know, and, and for the, the money for, again, cures for Alzheimer's and things like that. Uh, and I hope we can do a couple of other big things. The defense authorization bill, where I think Jim Inhofe has done splendid work, passed that out of there 80-something to 8 or something like that. Uh, it's a very bipartisan bill. And and maybe get the trade deal that uh, uh, the president's had on the table for us for over a year with Canada and Mexico. I think that would strengthen our hands with China and it would regularize trade uh, in an area where over 40% of our exports go to one of those two countries. They're, they're actually multiple times more important to us than China to, to nail down our friends and neighbors in Canada and Mexico on a, on a better deal than NAFTA. Congressman, thanks so much again, and thanks for listening, and uh, look for more on theoklahoman.com and in the Oklahoman every day.